Luke chapter 13. I was communicating with the Randalls as they were on their way to Florida, uh, Georgia. Anything east of Barstow is the same to me. But they had stopped for lunch in Amarillo. And so I keyed in Amarillo on my computer to see that the weather there was pretty much just like it is here. But I thought it was interesting. We're undergoing an excessive heat warning. And for Amarillo, it's just another day. So uh, context means everything. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. You know, before I read, I want to remember men. Next Saturday is our first men's breakfast of the season. And we'll be meeting over in the East Sanctuary at 8.30. And our theme is equipped by example. And our uh, topic for September is purity. Uh, We'll be addressing these topics by way of panels. Uh, Again, it all starts at 8.30, finishes up at 10, and a minimum donation of $5 would be appreciated for each breakfast. So hope to see you there. Luke 13, beginning in verse 31, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, "Uh, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, uh, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus far, God's word. What would you do if someone wanted to kill you? Maybe someone has. Uh, At the very least, you would uh, defend yourself. More than likely, you'd probably turn around and run. I remember a night 40 years ago, halfway around the world, when I laid down outside of a desert bus station with a knife in my hand. And I can remember opening my eyes just before I uh, uh, began my my rest, making sure the knife was properly positioned in my hand and the blade was such that I could just raise my arm and drop it in case anyone approached us because there was a clear and present danger right across the pavement. And there was nowhere to go. So I prepared to defend us. And this morning's passage begins with the Pharisees warning Jesus that Herod wants to kill him. Now, some would say that this was a false warning. It was really a contrivance. And I have one, two, three reasons here why it might be. But others would say, and I've come to agree with them, that this was a real warning Uh, Even though every time the Pharisees are mentioned in the book of Luke, it's in a negative light, this is one little ray of 
uh, help and hope. Uh, Herod was a clear and present danger to Jesus' life. Consider that Herod Sr. had already tried to kill Jesus when he was a toddler. And now Herod Jr., who had brutally killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, uh, uh, is perplexed over his ministry. We saw this back in Luke chapter 9, and we can assume that it's been jacked up even more over the last two chapters as Jesus, in very trenchant terms, has addressed matters concerning life, but more so death. And, and especially death as the gateway to either heaven or hell, which he has described in utterly horrid terms. Finally, you'll notice here in chapter 13 that the bookends for it are Pilate on the front end there in verse number one, and Herod here on the back end, both of whom, though enemies now, are going to team up in chapter 23 and happily help bring an end to Jesus' life and ministry. So Jesus' life was in real danger. But here's the bracing thing about this fact, that in the face of death, Jesus attempted to neither defend himself or to run away. He, he didn't call the masses to revolt. He didn't call his disciples to take up arms. He didn't reverse his decision to set his face toward Jerusalem, which we saw in chapter 9, verse 51, and instead start running the other way. No, rather, with his life in the balance, Jesus defied the Pharisees' warning. And he did so with the conviction of his whole person. That is his head in verses 31 through 33, as well as his heart in verses 34 and 35. And this head and heart response clearly reveals that Jesus was not some cerebral ascetic to whom people would come for uh, pearls of wisdom. Nor was he some bombastic populace that was stirring up the masses. No, rather, Jesus was an entirely integrated person. He was thoughtful. He was feeling. He was totally authentic. So as we approach this passage this morning, the question we want to ask is this. What was of such value to Jesus that he was willing to die for it? And as we'll see, there were two things. First, his father's will, which was clear in his head, and he expresses in 31 through 33. And second, our well-being, which is close to his heart. We've already sung about it this morning, and we'll see that in verses 34 through 35. So that's the way forward, his father's will, our well-being, head and heart. So to begin, Jesus was willing to die for the sake of his father's will. Uh, his father's will who was greater than Herod. And we know this by way of Jesus' response to the Pharisees in that he referred to Herod as a fox. Now in Greek culture, 
A fox symbolized someone who was uh, crafty and deceitful and sly, you know, just like the alphabet uh, thing on the wall of your elementary classroom, F, fox, wringing hands, you know, uh, peaked eyebrows. But according to Jewish subculture, fox was a nickname for somebody whom in public was thought of as a lion, but in private was referred to as a kitty cat. It was also in the Jewish subculture a homophone. That, that is in Hebrew, fox sounded just like another word, but with an entirely different meaning. Fox sounded just like the name Saul. And so Jesus may have been very well making a, a, a humbling, yea, humiliating comparison between King Saul, who in Old Testament days regularly threatened the life of David, and Herod, who now in New Testament days regularly threatened the son of David. Of course, the comparison highlights the fact that while Saul put David in danger and Herod put Jesus in danger, neither David nor Jesus was ever at risk because they were regularly and entirely under God's great care. So, to be sure, Jesus' father was greater than Herod, but further, his father's will was greater than Herod's will. See, Herod's will was to keep the peace. Keep the peace. Keep it dialed down. First century historian Josephus said that Herod didn't like drama. And Jesus brought too much of that along with him wherever he went. But Jesus wouldn't be dissuaded by Herod's threat to put him down because his father's will wasn't just to keep the peace, it was to save the world. Jesus made that clear in verse 32 when he ordered the Pharisees to tell Herod, behold, I'm casting out demons and performing healings, both of which were messianic signs. Both of which were things that only the Messiah could do. We saw this in spades back in chapter seven. And things that John the Baptist, who was killed by Herod, had already attested to. Behold, I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I reach my goal. That is, I'm doing things not on your schedule and according to your will, Herod, but according to my schedule and my Father's will. Now, Jesus' reference to reaching his goal on the third day that we clearly understand to be the day of his resurrection was alluded to by the Old Testament prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2. And the Pharisees understood that. And it was a repeat of what Jesus had already said back in chapter 9, verse 22, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he would say it again in chapter 18, verse 33, that the Gentiles will kill him and on the third day he will rise. Now, we clearly see that now. But to make sure that the 
Pharisees were expressly clear about what he had said, Jesus goes on to say in verse 33 that nevertheless, I must go on my journey. My journey today and tomorrow and the next day. In other words, you warned me away from my journey to Jerusalem, but there's a greater purpose at work here and I'm gonna stick to it. Since, as he goes on, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So in this way, Jesus clearly expresses the fact that his mission was prophetic and not political. Herod's mission was to keep the peace. Uh, the Pharisees' mission was to keep their power, both of which had political ends. But Jesus' mission was to fulfill his Father's will, to save the world, an objective that was not political but entirely prophetic. And this led Jesus um, uh, hard and fast to stand in a, a, a sense of political resolve, exemplified by the prophets who had come before him. He could not be dissuaded. You remember back in 9, it said he set his face, I think in the King James it says like flint, toward Jerusalem. Uh, Ezekiel, I believe it's in chapter 3, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a head like a giant rock because these people are going to come after you and it's got to all just bounce off. This is the kind of resolve that Jesus had. Uh, earlier this week, I was just, Reading my Bible, uh, I've been going through the, the minor prophets. I'm in Amos. And one of these examples just popped right off the page at me. I think you'll see why. It's in Amos 7. You don't have to turn there. And it involves Amos the prophet and Amaziah the priest. Now to begin, the priest warned the prophet that the king had it in for him. Just like the Pharisees warned Jesus. Then the priest exhorted the prophet Go, flee away, he said in Amos 7, just like the Pharisees exhorted Jesus. And then finally, in no uncertain terms, Amos the prophet defied the warning of Amaziah the priest, just like Jesus defied the Pharisees. So these, these prophetic similarities in concert with all the others in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and more, were not lost on the Pharisees. They knew their Bibles. And the prophetic comparisons coupled with Jesus' resolve unnerved them. Further, Jesus' confidence in the greatness of his Father and his Father's will led to this beautiful sense of what I'm going to call prophetic freedom. Prophetic freedom, liberation. You see, Jesus was not at the mercy of anyone or anything but for his Father and his Father's will. And that freedom was nurtured and fortified by his Father's word, which he regularly and prayerfully read. Scriptures such as, my times are in your hands, Psalm 31:15. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56:11. 
The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, one as yet there was none. Psalm 139.16. So when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem in chapter 9, verse 51, it was according to a plan. It wasn't according to chance. It was like a choreographed dance for which body and action and space and time and energy are determined before the music even begins. Jesus' prophetic resolve and freedom accentuate the fact that his life was not taken from him. This wasn't some sad accident of history where Jesus, like an animal, got backed into a corner and was robbed of his life. No, rather, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It was given. It was volitionally handed over for us, thoughtfully and freely. And as Jesus trusted himself to his faithful Father, so can we. Just as the Father fulfilled the Old Testament promises in Jesus at his first advent, he will fulfill his New Testament promises at Jesus' second advent. That means our future's in good hands. God can be trusted. Further, just as the Father's word freed Jesus to live in hope and not in fear, so too can we enjoy that same freedom, even over death. This is why uh, the Puritan Samuel Rutherford, whose uh, letters I've been reading, he lived back in the 1600s and uh, was jailed back in the early 1630s for being a faithful gospel preacher. He wrote in one letter, see how the number of your months is written in God's book? And as one of the Lord's hirelings, you must work till the shadow of the evening comes upon you. And you shall run out your glass, your hourglass, even to the last grain of sand. (laughs) It's not over till the last grain drops through. So Rutherford concludes, so fulfill your course with joy. Colonial evangelist George Whitfield said, fear not your weak body. We are immortal until our work is done. So Jesus was willing to die for the sake of his father who was greater than Herod, as well as his father's will which was greater than any human will. All of which thoughtfully, clearly explained, reasoned out here in 31 through 33. Now as we move into 34 and 35, we also see that Jesus was willing to die for the sake of our well-being. And he begins by teasing out the implications of ending this present journey uh, uh, on which we've been following him in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem isn't just any other city. Jerusalem represents God's people, those to whom he had specially revealed himself, as well as God's prophets those whom he'd sent to his people to declare his word, but were killed for having done so faithfully and uh, without compromise. Hence, this pathetic and heartfelt entree uh, 
of Jesus in verse 34, where, where he, he, he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which summons up uh, historic cries of mourning and frustration from the scriptures, uh, 2 Samuel 18, Jeremiah 22, Samuel passage, you remember David when he hears his son, Absalom is dead, he cries out, oh, Absalom, Absalom. And then Jeremiah, oh, earth, earth, earth. And then even from Jesus' own ministry when he says to Martha, oh, Martha, Martha. So this is coming up from the core of his being, from the gut with tears and hands upturned. And the reason for Jesus' painful expression is because, because this is what he wanted. First, he wanted Israel to see there in verse 34, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her young under her wings. How does a hen do that? Well, take a look at the screen and we'll, we'll see how a hen does that. How many legs can you count underneath that hen? Isn't that beautiful? Complete, secure, powerful. I love that. It's an image, actually, from Israel's history. Originally introduced by Moses in his farewell sermon, as he reflected on the Lord's protection of his people all the way from Egypt up to Palestine. It's in Deuteronomy 32. In fact, it says, like an eagle, so it's the bird image, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. And, and that image of nurture and protection uh, uh, comes across the stage again and again throughout the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. Psalm 17, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 63, 7, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Psalm 91, 4, under his wings, you will find refuge. And you know, one of the things I like about this picture is that Though entirely protected, every little chick still has to put one foot in front of the other. It doesn't spirit you away from whatever it is you're going through, but he certainly protects you and cares for you all along the way. And this is what Jesus wanted for his people. He wanted it then, and he wants it for you now. He wants to cover you. He wants to do that. He wants to cover you powerfully, completely, and securely. And in doing so, see you through whatever challenge you may be facing this morning. I don't think there's ever a morning, Sunday morning, when the elders come together to pray and don't actively remember that everybody walks into this room on a Sunday morning with something. Something. And Jesus wants to help you, to protect you, to secure you, to comfort you with whatever that may be. Money, relationships, family, work, identity, sex, illness, loneliness, location. 
That's what Jesus wants. But this is what his people wanted. You can go ahead and take that down. Thanks, wheels. This is what his people wanted. They wanted their own way. (laughs) Nice thought, but we want to do our thing. And the irony is that throughout Israel's history, they cried for deliverance. Deliver us from our sin, Judges 10, Psalm 79. Deliver us from foreign gods, 1 Samuel 4. Deliver us from our enemies, 1 Samuel 12. Deliver us from the nations, 1 Chronicles 16. Now the deliverer has arrived, but they wouldn't have him. And this was a tragedy that was foreshadowed. (laughs) It was foreshadowed by Asaph, the psalm writer, who said in Psalm 81, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Classic image of deliverance in the Old Testament. He goes on. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's what God wants to do. Charles Simeon preached at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge for 53 years. I think that was the verse that he quoted more than any other. That's what God wants for you. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel wouldn't submit to me. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And this tragedy has been realized in spades over the last two chapters at which we've been looking here in Luke, chapters 12 and 13, that were beautifully summed up by Kenny in this week's sermon prep. Go back and open your grace wire if you didn't see sermon prep. You can read this. Where over the last few weeks, the master is weeping over the wicked servants who are unprepared for his return home. Jackson preached on that. The judge is weeping over the accused who are making no effort to settle with their more than willing to settle accuser. Fred preached on that. The vine dresser is weeping over the unfruitful fig tree while the hose and the shovel are still in his hand. Kenny preached on that. And the master stands preaching with open arms at the door over all who refuse to enter in and recline at his table in the kingdom of God. Junior preached on that last week. Kenny concludes, Jesus' tears magnified the depths of the riches of the mercy of God. But Israel wouldn't have it. Their hearts were hard. They were unwilling to receive their deliverer. And so with Jeremiah 12 and Jeremiah 22 at the forefront of his mind, Jesus declares, your house is left to you desolate. And in a few short years, Jerusalem was entirely dismantled and destroyed by the Romans between 68 and 70 AD. In fact, Josephus' description of that destruction is very much like John Hersey's award-winning description of Hiroshima after it was annihilated by the atom bomb. I've been reading that lately, and I uh, listened to the description of Jerusalem at its destruction, very similar. Absolutely wiped out. Well, this morning, Jesus 
stands before us by way of his word in tears. Tears in his eyes, offering deliverance to men and women who need it. We all need it. We all walked in with something this morning, but do you want it? Will you have it? I never smoked cigars, but in the 90s, I read Cigar Aficionado magazine monthly. And I'll always remember the article about Sigmund Freud. Uh, Cigars, which Freud loved, killed him. And uh, Freud's doctor told him that cigars were killing him. And Freud understood that, but he kept on smoking. And his friends understood that, but they kept giving Freud cigars. Freud's doctor wanted to save him. Freud was unwilling to have it. He smoked himself right into the grave. So again, will you have it? Will you have him? Will you have Jesus as your healer, as your deliverer, someone who's stronger than any government official? And there's a lot of government flexing going on these days. Jesus is stronger than that. Someone whose plans aren't political, but prophetical, eternal, full of resolve, full of freedom, even worth dying for. Someone who not only has a head for the times, but a heart for you, a heart for your well-being, a heart for your protection, someone who's stronger than death. That's what Jesus offered Jerusalem through tears. I used to minister with a guy who cried every time he got into the pulpit. (laughs) One day I went into his office, I sat down across from him and I said, I said, Dave, if you keep this up, they won't listen to you anymore that they, they won't be able to hear it. And he said, well, he, he was totally unfazed by my criticism, loving criticism. But he said, uh, I'll answer you the way evangelist George Whitfield answered a critic who accused him of the same thing. These are Whitfield's words. You blame me for weeping, but how can I help it when you will not weep for yourselves? though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction. I stood up and backed out of the office and never brought it up again. And he's continued to cry for the last 30 years to great effect, I might add. But even with tears in his eyes, before those who wouldn't have him, Jesus still extended a final word of hope. There's always hope. There's always more grace. Verse 35 concludes with Jesus saying, I say to you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a quotation from Psalm 118, 26. And to be sure, those words were fulfilled in Luke chapter 19. We'll see that uh, months from now on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as those words were called out by the teeming crowds. But on that day, those words were only partially fulfilled. They'll be totally fulfilled, hope entirely realized on the day of Christ's return. When Jews and Gentiles will see him descend 
and look on him whom they have pierced and cry out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But again, the question is, is that your hope? Will you cry that out on that day? It's certainly what Jesus wants for you. That's his hope for you, to bring you to himself, to welcome you home, to hide you in the shadow of his wings where there is singing and joy and refuge forever. If you want that, if this has stirred you up this morning, if it at least gets you to want to talk about it a little bit more, there'll be people on either side of the platform right after this service to talk and even pray with you. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for your forbearance even with us and your undying desire to cover us, to protect us, to make us secure, to give us joy, to give us songs in our heart, to see us through this world and on into the next. This world which you have defeated by fulfilling your Father's mission, by dying on our behalf and then rising forevermore. We'll never have to die like you did, Jesus. You drank the dregs. We don't have to, and we're so grateful. So stir us up this morning, we pray. May we commit ourselves to you or recommit ourselves to you in a fresh way. We pray in Jesus' name.